I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? How did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 59, we read The Decadent Society by Ross Douthat, published earlier this year in 2020. Ross Douthat was born in 1979 in San Francisco and grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Raised in Episcopalian, he moved toward Pentecostalism as a teenager, then converted to Catholicism with the rest of his family at the age of 17. He graduated from Harvard in 2002, became a senior editor for The Atlantic, then joined the New York Times editorial page in 2009, where he continues to publish a regular column. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to check out episode 27, where we discussed Grand New Party, the, bo- the book that Douthat co-authored with Ryan Salam in 2008. So I think this is the first author that we've covered twice. Yeah, I was thinking that. I, th- I think it is. What, a, what an honor for Ross. And <laughs> we actually had lined up for Ross to join us, but then the COVID hit and every, the whole board got scrambled. So Ross, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on. We'll hopefully line that up some other day. But in this book, Doubt That argues that contemporary Western civilization now finds itself on a treadmill. While the speed with which we experience events has quickened, the speed of actual change has not, at least not growth and innovation, reform and revolution, aesthetic reinvention, or religious ferment, he says. And now the frontier, the American frontier, is basically closed. He says, in Western nations, it remains a cultural assumption that unexplored frontiers and fresh discoveries and new worlds to conquer are not just desirable, but the very point of life. But for the first time since 1492, we have found the distances too vast and the technology too limited to take us to somewhere genuinely undiscovered. He he sees the change happening in the 1960s. That's the turning point in, in his telling. And it could relate, he says, to the, whether the, he says, whether the closing of the stellar, that is, trip to the moon frontier somehow caused the West's post-1960s turn toward pessimism or simply interacted with the trends already at work. It remains a turning point in the history of the modern world. Before Apollo, the Apollo mission, it was easy to imagine that our civilization's story was really in its early days. But since Apollo, we have entered decadence. So he says, the truth of America and the West is that we have not been hurtling anywhere except maybe in a circle. Instead, we are aging, comfortable and stuck, cut off from the past and no longer pessimist or no, sorry, no longer optimistic about the future. So that's a pretty harsh critique, isn't it? It, Mm -hmm. it Really kind of dour note and crushing of our American dream of constantly moving forward in progress. Yeah. I think he, I mean, he, he draws on a lot of, uh, old thinking about the frontier that I I think is accurate. I mean, people talk about um, Frederick Jackson, Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis that something in America changed around 1890 when there was no more frontier, where there was no more, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody in a Western city or an Eastern city or town frustrated with his life. Just say, you know what? It's enough of that. I'm heading out West. 
got you know, there's homesteads to be claimed. There's you know sod to be broken. You know this country is still building. I can just leave and start a new life. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's not that not that the new life was always you know amazing, but it was it was the uh, the idea that you can just just leave. You know, just just go off and and do a restart. And that sort of made the I think it changed the American dream itself when that ended. And then I think in Douthat's telling the the end of the Apollo program in seventy two was sort of the end of that second American dream where it's you know there's no more frontier exactly but we are still a very forward looking nation and yeah and one thing I've I've noticed before when you look at fifties uh, and sixties in the literature and in the architecture there's a lot of futurism you know there's a lot yeah. of and it's yeah. it's kind of rare when you compare it to, you know so many other eras including our own often look to the past at least for their style or for their you know they think well this is what we're going through now is similar to this thing that happened a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago the 60s man they were just i mean a lot of it was bad but it was very it was new you know and they Mm -hmm. i mean i think there's some credit deserved to the people in that time as having this view of like we're we're changing, we're going new places, we're doing new things. You know, there there's there's limitless possibilities, and that I, that must be how it felt when we first went to the moon. After, yeah. I mean, President Kennedy was just talking about it in the early '60s, and by '69, we're there's they're putting the American flag on the moon. It's that's amazing. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty when you think about how fast we geared up for that and did it, and you know, brought brought those guys back safely. It's amazing. And then, yeah, so I could see, you know, Douthat saying, well, what did we do after that? And part of it's that the 70s were just bad. You know, I mean, there was a lot of the, I mean, stagflation, which is pretty unknown in our history before. You know, you stagnation and inflation at the same time. It's a pretty terrible combination. You know, America's sort of military prowess was called into doubt because we because of Vietnam and you know, we never, we didn't feel like the invincible nation anymore. I don't know. I think there's something to what he's saying that we've kind of just been repeating the past and not forging a new future. Mm-hmm. That's a great insight about the fifties and sixties being so future oriented. I was struck by that last year when we went to Disney world and in future land, I mean, immediately you're sort of like, this is what the future looked like from the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. How Haven't we got, updated it since then? <laughs> I don't know how you got to Disney, but if you went through Dulles, it's the same thing. Like that, uh-huh. the architecture of Dulles is like, wow, we're going to be flying to the moon from this place soon. This, yeah, is, yeah. this is the future, baby. You know, and it's got that look. It's got like the past idea of the future, like all weird curved lines and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a it's a vibe that I don't know. People try and recapture it a bit, you know, with. Elon Musk trying to go to Mars and stuff, but I don't know. I, I, that doesn't seem like it's captivating the culture. You know, I mean, it doesn't, I think everybody sure. was looking at that moon in, in the sixties and saying, we're going to go there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, for sure. All right. So what does he mean by decadence? He gives us up front. He gives us a definition. Decadence, he says, refers to economic stagnation, institutional decay, and cultural and intellectual exhaustion at the high level of material prosperity and technological development. Repetition is more the norm than innovation. Sclerosis afflicts public institutions and private enterprises alike. Intellectual life seems to go in circles. New developments in science or new exploratory projects in general 
under deliver compared with what people recently expected. The stagnation and decay are often a direct consequence of previous development. The decadent society is by definition a victim of its own significant success. So we make these giant leaps throughout the 20th century and now all the low-hanging fruit has been picked and we're rich and relatively content, especially those who who are in charge and especially Mm -hmm. an entire baby boomer class, relatively content with what, as it relates to our everyday needs. You know, we've, we've invented enough to how to live comfortably, you know, out of the caves, so to speak, you know, out of, uh, out of the woods. So then we shift to like, well, we're not inventing too much. So what should we complain about? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's, it's a weird sort of, uh, he, he draws a distinction between decadence and decline. I mean, it, it doesn't, to be decadent doesn't mean that the country's doing badly. You know, since 72, we've had a lot of good years. And, uh, I mean, up until this, uh, coronavirus thing, we'd had a bunch of good years in a row and, uh, things were getting a little bit better for everyone. You know, technology was improving in some ways that were meaningful. You got your new iPhones and such, but it's, um, it's also this sort of decline. It, it, I, yeah, I think it's just the, the lack of newness, you know, it's like we're improving, you get the new iPhone, but it's not the new that's just an improvement on the old iPhone. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. a little better tech, you know, a little faster download or whatever, but it's not, um, it's not new, you know? And I think, I think he, um, he talks a lot about the movies too, about, you know, in the sixties and seventies, you're getting a lot of new films and so much of today is just remakes. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know. I mean, that kind of, I don't know what you count the superhero movies as are kind of adaptations of old media kind of new too but in terms of like your more serious pictures they're they're all you're getting you're getting you know the fourth iteration of a star is born okay you know it's mm-hmm. like, it, it's fine it's you know people like old stories but he um he just sees this as you know uh cycling back on itself not not actually developing a new path i think we all recognize this because just think of the the cartoons and stuff from when we were younger, you know, the same superheroes, the same mm-hmm. transformers, you know, the the same GI Joe, and they're just really not coming up with new stuff. I mean, Simpsons, 30 something years old. Yeah. It, I, that really spoke to me of, all right, you know, basically I've seen this already, you know, it's a rehash of something we've already done. But he, he also focuses on stagnation in particular technical stagnation He's got that great quote from Peter Thiel that so many of us are familiar with, where Thiel says, we were promised flying cars and all we got was 140 characters, <laughs> like Twitter. Mm-hmm. Lots of inventions expected 50 years ago, now dismissed as Jetson stuff. Jetsons being that, that old futuristic cartoon. Everyday life was more radically transformed by earlier technological breakthroughs. And I've, I've heard Peter Thiel talk about this, and he's, he's written about it in his books too, but... There's a point to be made that the invention of electricity, having water, indoor plumbing, you know, and, sew- and sewage, the invention, of, I mean, the automobiles were invention- invented 100 years ago, and we really, we've improved upon it for sure, mm-hmm. but there hasn't been some big gain. It's still four wheels, you know, on a, on a dirt path or on a road. And, you know, the invention of airplanes where there had, Peter Thiel makes this 
has made this point so many times, but there really has not been huge gains in transportation since the really the fifties. Yeah. And, and there hasn't been any, uh, you know, huge gains in how we, how we're able to live our lives. Although I think he, he does sell short, I think a little bit, the internet. I mean, that really has changed. Obviously we wouldn't be able to have this conversation if it wasn't for the internet or, mm-hmm. and, you know, information age is really, it has changed the way we live our lives. Has it, has it improved the way we've lived our lives in some ways? Yes. I mean, the, with the COVID example, if we didn't have the internet, how would that be affecting us? You know, could number one, could we really have stopped going into work? Yeah. And in, in, in 1918, they, they kept going to work. Because they yeah. were, had to go, like that's where the work was, right. you know. So yeah, that that that's something that happened right after this book came out. That I think might have he might have devoted some time to that, admitting that there are some gains from it. Mm-hmm. All right, and so he says, progress has become increasingly monodimensional. It's basically all tech, and nothing else. Yeah, and I when you really come when it comes down to brass tacks. I, actually probably true i do think that smartphones have really has radically changed the way we interact in daily life and so forth and i especially see that with with my kids you know how they relate to their friends is just really pretty different i mean we had video games but you had to have people come over to play if you wanted Mm -hmm. to have a big game and now now the kids stay indoors you know, if, if we let them, they'd stay indoors 24 hours <laughs> yeah. a day. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is all tech. There's not new ideas. And that's I, what struck me about some of these, uh, protests that have been going on is it, it all seems to be a almost conscious rehashing of the protest of 50 years ago and, and 60 years ago. Yeah. I mean, you, even, even the radicals are rat, they're communists, right? So, yeah. I mean, that's an it's idea that came around thing. in 1848. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, there was a time, you know, in, in 1917 when the Russians were having their red revolution and you could say, well, that's, well, that's new, you know, it, it's not good, but at least it's original. But now it's, yeah. Now when they have a hundred years of knowledge of how that doesn't work, they're still doing the same thing. And even, <laughs> even the like neo-fascist types, what is that? That's a hundred-year-old idea too. I mean, when the Mussolini started up with that stuff in the twenties, so it's yeah. There's no. It's it's curious that there's no uh, new, and maybe this is like Fukuyama's thing. You know, we've we've been through all the alternatives. Mm-hmm. They're they're out there. You know, we now we have to pick among what's left, and we we can see that liberal democracy is is it. Um, but yeah, there's not really any. Uh, really anything different in the slogans except they're a little more extreme you know like the kids in the 60s were calling the cops pigs these kids want to fire them all well okay it's the same thing though it's just anti <laughs> you know it's it's not that different. yeah yeah they just there were there were there were prison abolitionists in the 70s too you know it's just it was more of a fringe thing so I, yeah, the, the lack of new ideas even in in other fields besides politics I mean there's not really new ideas in in religion either which Talitha talks sort of more about religion towards the end of the book, but it, like what else, what are the new cultural ideas? I, I don't know. I don't hear them. Yeah. It really is striking. And this, this podcast project that we've embarked on has really laid bare as Nietzsche says, eternal recurrence. I mean, everything just kind of recycles itself and, 
that's just especially true with, when it comes to cultural issues because so many of our books have more or less picked up on this rising Marxism in the, in the classroom, in the, in the universities. And <laughs> that's not, doesn't mean that it isn't something we should take note of because now it's spilled into, at least for some kids, real activity. But he says, uh, the culture war reflects the same recurring cycle of arguments from 60 years ago. The reality of recurrence may be harder for progressives to acknowledge than conservatives because progressivism is more invested in its supposed position as the vanguard of cultural change. Difficult to recognize generational recycling. But I mean, I think you just, you just articulated it, but on the conservative side, I, I did chuckle at this for conservatives. The hour is always late and this is the <laughs> era that will bring about the final dissolution of traditional values or Christianity or America. And I chuckle at that because <laughs> just had the same conversation with my parents, you know, like <laughs> yeah, the, the every, end of times. <laughs> everybody thinks his times is the end of times. Just like every communist thinks we're in late stage capitalism. Yeah. Like, we, late we've been in late stage capitalism for 150 years. <laughs> <laughs> keeps going. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He's right. And this just sounds like somebody who's read a lot of conservative books too, where it's always, yeah. it's always about to be the end. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so on, on one side, it's, it's eternal progress. And, and you and I, I think have, through our readings, that's basically been debunked. And then, and then on the conservative side, the hour is always late. And I think maybe progressives can keep it up because a lot of the leading voices don't know history and are young themselves. Mm -hmm. So that's how you can keep that. Well, this isn't, this is new. This is different. You know, maybe the, a lot, of, and I think that's part of what's behind some of the, uh, the cleavages you're starting to see between the old liberals and the new progressives, you know, this, it, it like the debate over, cancel culture and free speech and things whereas a lot of the old hippies who fought yeah. for free speech are now saying whoa you know we don't want to be on the other end of that we don't want to be the ones stifling it we we, we remember how that went it was bad but when the vanguard of your movement is like 25 or something and, and didn't and the only history they learned is some quasi-marxist high school history course yeah yeah they, they don't know any better so they can keep up this illusion that they're doing something new uh and the points out they're they're not and well i think that's probably this the secret of marxist thought too is that it it promises progress it promises the dialectic of the world will finally reach its reach its great pinnacle mm -hmm. in everything being right with you know socialism and communism and and so every new generation can pick that up and say Oh yes, we're in the late. We're also in the late stages of of achieving this greatness, and we just have to topple the the current um, social order or whatever. But I I did like in chapter five, which he entitles "Comfortably Numb." This was again he 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 wrote this. He, it was published earlier this year, but he wrote it and published it right before COVID came out. And so, obviously, like some some things of I, it would be fascinating to hear what he thinks as a result, but it says the internet brings back dramas and tragedies of history, but only as a stage production, a costumed farce in the real world. Western society is leaning back in an easy chair hooked up to a drip of something soothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. like pl playing Marxism. You know, he talks about how the internet right now is when he's talking about a stage production and, and playing history, you have, you have these kids on the left and Antifa like playing, 
playing uh, Marxism and communism revolution on the internet with, with Twitter. And, and of course you have the alt-right or so forth, whatever they are. Um, yeah, they some of that has broken out. I mean, I guess some of it has broken out and, and it, it remains to be seen how the world's going to react. But I honestly think that it has everything to do with being locked indoors. I, oh, I really yeah. Do. Yeah. People, it radicalizes us all. You know, it, I'm, it, I'm not saying that, that you know, I'm not going to say one thing or the other about about racism in America. I have my views, but I will say that I personally am more convinced than ever that that's a spasm of a population who's like sick of being stuck indoors. And you're really talking about like a lot of young people who don't feel like their future should be locked up forever, even with the COVID, you know? So, yeah. And I don't even know if they draw a direct line to it. I think there's just a lot of people feeling what we call cabin fever or anxiety over the future. And it's, it's, it's sort of a, a more severe version of the, what, that describes you know he's talking about the the decadence and the feeling of not going anywhere even as you know the people in charge are going to put up charts and say look we're we have a higher standard of living than we've ever had economy is good more jobs you know there's stock market is quite high there was you know when he wrote this but then it's like in 2016 a lot of people were seeing that and then they're looking at their town saying i don't know Maybe it's, maybe it's like that somewhere else. It's not like that here. Now that we're all locked down, all these tech advances feel like the sort of empty, fake advances that Douthat has portrayed them to be. You know, it's, oh, great. We've got, you know, got some real realistic video games. They're pretty sweet, but I just played them for a week and I want to go outside. You know, yeah. <laughs> I want to I go back to work. I want to go back to school. I'm going nuts here and everybody's going a little nuts. So I, I think that's, you know, maybe maybe this has pushed some of the meme lords into actual rebellion. Although it doesn't seem like there's that many of them. I think most people are still just. I think they don't even know the difference between are you are you posting that socialist thing to get likes, or are you posting it because it's you want the revolution? And I think a lot of them wouldn't be able to answer it honestly. Mm-hmm. It's it's all kind of mixed up together. We see this answer for some because these Antifa groups are now even being, even in Seattle are being criticized or in Portland being criticized by the NAACP, you know, who mm-hmm. still don't have anything nice to say about Trump, of course, but, but are, but are also criticizing these kids saying like, this, this is not what we want. And the kids <laughs> right. are like, well, this is this, you gave us the pretext we needed to go out and start like destroying stuff, you know? And, yeah. This started as a, a civil rights thing basically. And now it's, yeah, now it's a bunch of white communists just wrecking stuff. And I, yeah, I don't see how that connects, but they do. I don't know. So, and he, he also spends quite a bit of time on the stagnation of the economy. He says, in a decadent economy, the supposed cutting edge of capitalism is increasingly defined by let's pretendism. What he means by that is technologies that have almost arrived, business models that are on their way to profitability. Like Twitter, <laughs> uh, by runways that go on and go on without ever achieving liftoff. You know, I think of Twitter, who they they have become profitable now, but you know they're also losing users. Um, and I think of the green economy, which is the great the great promise that oh yeah, you know, never seems to ever deliver. 
And he, he also pinpoints artificial intelligence. He says beneath that, the AI hype, just as there's just as much evidence that we're heading for an AI winter. And this is one that I, I've been scratching my head about for a while because I, some cool things are probably coming, but they're a long ways off. And, you know, I feel like before COVID hit, there was so much attention paid um, in elite circles about what should we do when the, when all the robots are in charge and everybody loses their job. And I'm kind of like in 80 years when that happens, we'll worry about it. But for now, like <laughs> we got other problems to worry about. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was probably an undue focus on the good effects of these things, you know, where then we, we have all this technology and we're also connected, but then you see how a country like China uses it for control. You know, like we think of the internet yeah, as liberating absolutely. in the West, you know, you can, you can reach out, you can be anybody, you can, you know, you can read things that you would have had to fly across the country to find in a library. Now, you, you know, everything is at your fingertips, but the Chinese are using it for their, their social credit systems, which I think he goes into here a bit in this book. You know, the idea of like a credit rating for life based on your, mm-hmm. how they perceive your interactions with society to be good or bad. You've got the facial recognition stuff that's, you know, you can't go anywhere. It's like in, uh, like in Minority Report, yeah. which is one of those sci-fi movies. I think that we got some things right. I mean, not not the weird stuff about predicting crime, but just like the the back the setting where he's walking around and uh, there's no escape. It's reading your eyes. It, it can you know and yeah. I mean, there's such there's so many downsides to tech, but so many of the the tech bros that were running the economy either couldn't or wouldn't see it. And, and so many who worship that technological innovation as the, as the, the coming thing join them and, and sort of, oh, no, everything's going to be great. It's, you know, they don't think about, let alone the people put out of work, but they don't even think about the people who are going to be stifled by all of this, which it seems, I mean, I think more countries are going to be like China than like the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, we saw that put right into action, too. It's not even theoretical with with COVID, I can't count how many times I've read media reports of, that more or less praise the Chinese communists for the way that they handled COVID. And well, do you know how they did that? <laughs> I mean, they, they lock people in, they have cameras everywhere. They tell them if you go outside, you know, you're going to be thrown into a concentration camp and for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time where people are just dying inside their own apartments it's it is just brutal authoritarianism you know meanwhile they're also they've also created real holocaust concentration camps for the uyghurs Mm -hmm. rounded them up shaved their heads and so we see what this looks like in real life and in america you're like well that's not going to happen here well it kind of already is and when it comes to the internet he makes this point about how how the the internet has he calls it created kindly despotism, but this is, but he's really, what he's really getting at is, is the woke police state where, okay, if the government's not going to do it, we'll police you, we'll dox you, we'll cancel you, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll be act as the thought police as a, as a coordinated mob. And he says the internet is effectively the surveillance state, the panopticon where everyone is always watching everyone else the woke world of endless surveillance and judgment. 
And I think that's totally real. Now, does that have staying power? It might dissipate, you know, once some of the frustration of COVID kind of, but we might be, you know, years away. You and I have talked about off the podcast, but I don't know. It's creepy. It's scary. And I think you're right that, uh, that, and, and he makes this point very well that, that there has been an upside to tech, but certainly there's downside. Yeah. The, the, he, he really does get at the limits of technical innovation. And I think he gets into some of the, uh, possible ways it could end. I think that's sort of interesting. In chapter nine, he gets into, well, where are we going? You know, how's this going to end? How's you know, if this, if we are spiraling down, you know, what's it going to be? And is it going to be global warming, economic collapse, massive population shifts? It was, it was sort of an interesting chapter because it doesn't really, it like a lot of books, you know, it gets to the end and it's like, well, I don't know. Here's some possibilities. You know, but I mean, I, that's, that feels, I don't have the answers either. So, you know, it feels kind of wrong to criticize him for not giving us the one answer. But after you read about all the problems, you always want the answer and nobody has it. Yeah, for sure. And he also gets into the aging of Western societies in a chapter entitled Sterility. He says, below replacement fertility is now a fact of civilized life of the 21st century. And this is something that, a lot of people don't realize that Europe is shrinking. America is on its way to hitting the, the top of its curve. And it's really just immigration that, that keeps it from starting to shrink because the, the native born population already has below, well below replacement fertility in America. And the truth is even Mexico and South America is are heading in that same direction. A lot of the immigration from uh, from south of the border is actually not Mexicans anymore. It's you know the folks who were in Central America with the, those that whose the countries are in turmoil and run by gangs and everything. But even in Mexico, their their fertility curve is is starting to turn, and they're also aging, which is really fascinating. But He says, low birth rates turn rich societies into aging societies with fewer workers and more retirees, in which case the GDP shrinks and there's less dynamic, or or, sorry, less dynamism and less risk-taking in the economy. And this is an ongoing conversation I've had with another friend of mine who may be listening, that how long can can we continue to grow and... The answer that uh, doubt that has here, and I, that also in you know many other places that I've been reading, not forever. You know, we see that there is a test case of this, and that's Japan, where they're they're getting older and basically not having kids at all. And what is it meaning? Well, in the 1980s, Americans were afraid of Japan like taking over the industrial and economic world, and these days we don't worry about that at all. <laughs> because mm-hmm. they're not they're no longer dynamic they're no longer growing they're probably twice as decadent as we are yeah and, japan's always the that's always the one you can they seem like the most advanced down this downward spiral they're they were the first to have the terrible birth rates and the uh the, the, they have probably the oldest population in the world and they also have that that fear of immigration that makes them rely on robots a lot more than we do and they're always trying to develop like 
you know, robots that take care of people. And it, it is a sort of a frightening look at the future because it feels, it feels sterile. It feels dead, mm-hmm. you know? That, yeah. You look at it and the, you know, the, the technology is wonderful. I don't think Americans want to live that way. Yeah, and Douthat, he he quotes from that book, Children of Men, and I don't know if you've seen the movie or, or read that book, but it's a really interesting take on what would happen if if all of a sudden the world became sterile and you couldn't have any have any more kids, and so everyone was just slowly aging and dying out together. And it, of course, it turns into chaos and mm. kind of you know gang war and everything. But we have a little bit of that in Japan. I mean, they they can have kids and they are having some, but they have no immigration. And our answer in America and in Western Europe has been from from the technocratic elite on the right and the left has been let's just increase mass immigration you know use that as a solution that's that's as much the the democrat solution as it is sort of the wall street journals yep. but doubt that points out some some down some downsides to that he says immigration exacerbates intergenerational alienation and native immigrant friction because it heightens precisely the anxieties about inheritance and loss that below replacement fertility is heightening already. You know, he makes the point that you have an older workforce, it's lower productivity, and the absence or delay of grandchildren removes a reason for optimism and purpose. And I kind of see that. I mean, I, I can definitely see that with uh, with COVID too, like the, the, the attitudes of either single people and or like older their attitudes about whether kids should go to school or not are just very different than mine. Yeah. (laughs) Very different from uh, the vast majority of parents that I know. But anyway, so he says for, for natives who are aging, having, you know, mass immigration suggests that the benefits of that imagined future belong increasingly to people who seem culturally alien. And basically the benefits are going to go to other people's grandchildren. So he says, isn't it possible instead that the technocrats end up winning themselves the worst of both worlds since mass immigration hasn't actually staved off stagnation. Now that's an empirical question that really jumped out at me. We'd have to figure that out. But if he's right, mass immigration hasn't actually staved off stagnation and sclerosis, but it has created a restive minority population and a reactionary backlash that between them are pushing the entire system deeper into crisis. And I think that's a pretty provocative statement and and obviously he, he raises some empirical questions, but you know, if uh, the, the argument being made and I, I don't think we need to, I don't think we need to decide that now, but the argument me, being made by the wall street journal is that more immigration is needed in order to keep the society dynamic and, and growth continuing. And I've more or less, you know, bought into that all this time. It is interesting though, if, if, uh, if doubt that is right, that it actually hasn't staved off stagnation and sclerosis, but and so we're not necessarily getting the upside of it. I guess you can see why the Make America Great includes some restrictions on immigration because because some of the I guess some of the the feelings and reactions to immigration that uh, that he's pointing out here. Yeah, and I think he's right that the polarization sort of feeds on itself. You you see a lot of people on the left touting various uh, charts and things, saying you know the the white you know, rural American is something that's going to be irrelevant soon. So just get yeah. out of the way. Right. Let us from the cities, you know, with all of our multicultural backgrounds, just tell you what to do. Right. Right. 
you know, they're so, I mean, it's not even that just that there is a demographic trend, it's that they're getting ahead of the demographic trend and saying, just, you know, in the, in the way that young and radical people want to do they say, well, why wait now is the time, you know, we're, we're the future, you're the past, shut up, get out of the way. We're going to run this thing. And there's no way that that doesn't provoke a backlash. Absolutely. I mean, who wants to be told that they're obsolete? You know, whether, whether it's demographically likely or not, nobody wants to hear somebody saying your way of life is the past your demographic uh intersectional quadrant of the country is no longer relevant so we're not going to listen to you your values don't matter to us and that i don't know a little more introspection maybe in the way that message was presented would have stopped the backlash probably not though i mean it's just it's it's we see europe is more advanced in this you know with their and they're less used to immigration too, so they get an even bigger backlash. Whereas, at least in America, we've always had it, and we all come from it, so it's it's not as alien. The idea of immigration itself is not alien to us. But even even in our past, there's not been immigration at this level since 1880s and 90s, and that time also had its turmoils. So there was a lot of labor uprising. There was a lot of there was there was economic issues. There was you know radical union and management clashes so it's not i think he's not out of line to say that even if you support immigration you have to take account that there are trade-offs and one of them is it's going to polarize especially because immigration is is concentrating in different areas so people are getting different looks at it and i I think that's a great point that how how many times can you say that you guys are the past you're the losers we're on top now the power is ours and we don't expect that there will be a reaction to that. I mean, it's just goofy. Of course, it is. I mean, how much? How much can? You, how how long can you taunt a group of people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before they respond. I mean, and I'm and I'm not, not saying that you know every single response is the right one, but but still, I've I've long thought that. So he again points out the aging of rich societies. You know, the growing debt and COVID has only just exacerbated that into the mm-hmm. stratosphere. You know, we've spent like $5 trillion and Congress may or may not put up another $2 trillion. So, and he, he makes a, a point that I have always really found important, Cogent, is that educating the population can only happen once, meaning you can't go from, every, you know, the vast majority of the population being farmers to getting everybody in the classroom and educating them and getting the big gains from that, which we did in the 20th century, America did in the 20th century. But that, that only happens one time. You do it once and you've got mm-hmm. it. Okay. And so from here, here on out, better quality education. We're not saying, I'm not saying that that isn't helpful. It is, but it's only marginally helpful, you know, because we've already moved people. And those folks who are in the, the meritocratic society that we have, you know, has kind of worked for you and I, but there are going to be people who are smarter than others. And that's just always how it's going to be. There are people, some people are going to be more talented than others. 50% of the population will be in the bottom half. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Always, (laughs) always. And no amount of education is going to change that fact, right? I mean, it can, it can help people improve their lives, but there will always be those people who are doing better. Um, and then he, and then another example of which we've already talked about is you can only tame the wilderness once. Mm-hmm. 
so he 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 makes the point that even green technology really is only allowing for us to stay in the same spot so just to continue using this the same level of energy but this this is the this is the what he calls the secular stagnation now there was uh you had you had all these old obama guys like larry Summers saying well the days of three percent growth are just over we're never going to have three or four percent growth ever again and you know that's that gets people like me huffing and puffing like oh yeah we can <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh for a couple years during during uh trump's term we did and and it, things were actually improving and the, the economy was moving of course now covid hit and and you know, all bets are off but but i think st- the stagnation is not just um a f- necessarily an absolute fact of the way things are but it's also a, a an overriding attitude of well this is about the best we can do so you know let's just kind of improve what we have and <laughs> rather than having any aspirations i i think it is his possible solutions that Dow that focuses on the secular part of that secular stagnation too. And says, maybe, maybe one way out is, you know, I mean, the left, the right is looking to nationalism. The left is looking to more cosmopolitanism, but mm-hmm. perhaps a religious revival is the way out. And I, I wish that were true. I mean, waiting for the next great awakening might be a thing. Um, mm-hmm. But then I, I've also heard a lot of people talk about how what's going on now which I sometimes call the great awakening is sort of, maybe that is the next great awakening. It's just that along the way, all the religious elements of the great awakening have fallen off. And now our cultural revivals are just going to be a new radical form of secularism. I hope that's not true, but it's certainly possible. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of that's, as you were saying, it's of this moment of this COVID inspired moment. But I think he's, he he says that all of these things, fertility increasing is good, but it's not enough. We need an actual significant intellectual shift away from this sort of new tech paganism into a, you know, regaining the idea that there is something beyond material success. I think that's part of what motivated our ancestors. You know, it wasn't just about making your farm nicer. It was about living correctly and doing well and helping others to do well and doing right. And, it gave us some, you know, I mean, it gives you something to shoot for that the next software upgrade to your computer is not going to replace, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how do we get there? I don't know. I, I don't think he knows any more than anybody else. Um, but I mean, how did any of the religious revivals and great awakenings happen? Nobody really knows what starts them. Nobody really knows why they end. It's just that society cycles and we go through periods where everyone gets really into religion and then they react against that and get really into, if not against religion, they get into, you know, sort of watered down ecumenical quasi religion. So maybe waiting for that next revival is the best we can hope for, but it's, uh, I don't know. That seems, that's sort of like what, what uh, Rod Dreyer was getting at in, in the, uh, the Benedict option. It's like, well, we'll hunker down and we'll hope that a new thing comes that revives us. It, it doesn't give much as a call to action, but maybe there is no call to action. Mm-hmm. All right. That's doubt that catch us next time. <laughs>